you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Continue in our exposition through the gospel according to Luke. This morning we will look at Gabriel's message, and this is part 2. Our key words for our worshipers in training are birth, power, and son. As I was thinking about our passage this morning, I was remembering back to uh, the first time my wife, Felicia, was pregnant and how she told me about it. I remember coming home one evening and she was dressed very nice and had the table set for a wonderful meal. And then we had a discussion and eventually she handed me a card and I read it and inside it told me that I was to be a new father. And as I thought about that, I wonder, of all you dads, remember the first time that you heard that you were going to be a new father? Maybe some of you were very surprised. Some of you maybe were expecting it. You were just waiting that you were going to hear it every day. Maybe even you were a bit disappointed, worried, excited, joyful. Certainly, depending on the circumstances, we have a full different range of emotions. But no matter what the circumstances are, it is indeed a flood of emotions. (laughs) Immediately, the thought comes into our minds, my world will never be the same. And every child may be a little bit different. And as you have more, perhaps... Those emotions change, but nevertheless, many of them will still come. And as I thought about that, I tried to imagine what it would be to be in the situation of Joseph and Mary. Imagine that you're not married, you're legally bound to be married. And this godly woman that you are soon to marry, comes to you and tells you, I'm pregnant. And I I promise I I haven't done anything wrong. I love you. Um, You will be the child's father on the earth. And um, by, by the way, he will be called the son of the Most High and will be the forever king of the universe. Just thought I should let you know. And yes, I promise I am still a virgin. Now, let's be honest. (laughs) This is glorious. This is magnificent. It is reverent. It is awe-inspiring. It is a great story of how our Savior came into the world as the God-man to redeem His people and to establish His kingdom. There is no more glorious story in all the world. But let's not be overly pious about what we might assume and how we would respond if we were in Joseph's shoes. I think I might be be quick just to question a few things. I wonder how much Manischewitz she had at dinner the night before. (laughs) This isn't the typical thing we hear every day, right? This isn't the typical I'm pregnant story. Honey, guess what? I made dinner. There's baby carrots. 
There's baby asparagus. I put those little baby corns in the salad. I gave you a bunch of hints. You haven't figured it out. I'm pregnant. That's not the story Joseph got, right? And while you and I certainly have had an emotional experience being told of having a child, this was a bit unbelievable. Indeed, it is unbelievable. That is unless, of course, it's a glorious work of God to continue to do what He has always done. The unbelievable. The unexpected. And indeed, it was unexpected. But indeed, it was very glorious. Let's look at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now here it says in the sixth month and this is referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Remember last week we ended with um, seeing in the story that Elizabeth became pregnant um, through her husband Zechariah when he came home from the temple. So uh, remember, there's no, uh, there's no section breaks and verse breaks and chapters and all of that in the original writings. Those are in the scriptures to help us. So the story continues to flow directly into this next passage. And as a good historian, Luke is setting the, the timeline here. He's outlining something chronologically for us. And he says, so... That happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and six months after that, Gabriel visits Mary in the city of Nazareth. Now here again, it's important for us to remember, as we saw last week, that God uses small things, the most unexpected means to bring about His greatest ends. Even Nazareth. The fact that the scriptures call it a city is a bit of a stretch. There's no Greek word for town or village. Nazareth was, was only a small cow town. This wasn't Judea. This wasn't the center of the work of God throughout the centuries. This wasn't Jerusalem where the great temple of God was. This was Nazareth. It's an insignificant little town that's never been mentioned at all prior to this point in the Scriptures. It was overrun with Gentiles. There were many Roman soldiers who found their place of residence there. We even read in John chapter 1 that Nathaniel said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? So you see what kind of reputation the town of Nazareth had. And so Gabriel, the angel, sent by God to Nazareth to a young virgin girl named Mary who was betrothed to Joseph, who was of the house of David. Now, Mary, when we say young, most scholars believe that she was probably between the ages of 12 and 14 years old. So it's fair to assume by where she was and the situation, the circumstances she found herself in, that she was a poor peasant girl, illiterate. She had limited knowledge of the Scriptures other than what she was taught at home and in the synagogue. But she was, no doubt, from a faithful Jewish family. 
She had the life that so many women in her position in her day found themselves in as well. Simple, humble, eventually the mother of numerous children, stayed close to her place of birth, died really as a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. So we have young Mary betrothed to Joseph. Now, we can think of betrothal somewhat in the same way as we think of our understanding of an engagement, but it is a bit more significant. Uh, A young man would go to the father of the woman to whom he was to marry. He would negotiate with him, and he would pay a bride price. And after that price was paid, he was legally bound to marry that woman. He would call at that point her husband. He lived as her husband for a year, and that would be around the family. But they were strictly forbidden in that time period of betrothal from having any sort of sexual relationship. And after that year, there was a wedding. The two become one flesh, and they consummate the marriage in full. For one to back out of a time of betrothal, they had to get a legal divorce. It was not as easy as saying, well, we talked about a few things and something happened and we decided it just wasn't going to work out. They were legally bound. So we see here up front the significance of Mary having to tell Joseph that she was pregnant. As they were betrothed. Now it's important to note also, as Luke does, that Joseph was of the house of David. Why is that significant? And I'll say as a side note, there's no reason to argue against Mary also being of the house of David. It seems implied by the text. So Joseph and Mary of the house of David. Why is that important? Well, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. It's also important to understand why Mary had to be a virgin. Jesus had to be born of a virgin as to take on human flesh. But he had to take on human flesh without taking on the sinful nature of the humanity of which he came to redeem. And since Jesus was, the words of the Belgic Confession, conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation, His humanity, the humanity of Jesus was untainted by original sin. And there are several scriptures that attest to that reality. It was essential. It had to happen that Jesus was born of a virgin. We cannot deny that reality. So if we trace this through the scriptures, we see immediately after the fall with Adam and Eve, God told them that the Messiah would be born of woman. Now, remember, 
in Genesis 3.15, God makes no reference to a father of this child. He says he will come of woman. He hints at the virgin birth in Genesis 3.15. This is the first time the gospel was preached. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her son, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see reference to the coming Messiah who would be born of woman. There, right there in the beginning of the scriptures. And then more explicitly, we read in the prophetic words of Isaiah, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jeremiah prophesied that he would be of the house of David. And now we meet Mary, who is a virgin, the man, Joseph, she is married to, they're both of the house of David. All of the conditions that were set in the Old Testament and the prophetic words that were given have been met. And here's where it's all about to go down. In a small nothing town in the womb of a young teenage girl who was otherwise fairly insignificant in the eyes of the world. It's a magnificent story. It's the Lord once again using the small things to bring about the greatest ends. Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The Lord has shown favor to Mary. What does Gabriel mean by this special greeting that he gave to Mary? It is from this greeting that the Roman Catholic Church has wrongly derived the prayer of Hail Mary full of grace. This is certainly not what Gabriel has said. And the idea that Mary is somehow herself sinless and worthy of being hailed and praised is a complete departure from what the Bible teaches. And to do so is idolatry. She is not a giver of grace as Rome teaches. She's not to be prayed to in any form. The Roman teaching of the Immaculate Conception is the teaching that, quote, from the first moment of her conception, the Blessed Virgin Mary was, by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of mankind, kept free from the stain of original sin, end quote. In other words, the teaching is that Mary was born perfect. That's a gross distortion of the Bible. We must avoid seeing Mary as anyone more than what the Bible says of her. Now, no doubt she was a marvelous woman. She was favored by God. She was blessed. And think of it. Hers was the face that Christ's most resembled. He would have borne some of her human features. So just because Rome has made too much of her, we must not think too little of her in response. And we'll see in two weeks, she herself recognizes, all generations will call me blessed. Indeed, she's a blessed woman. And so we see here, the Lord has chosen Mary in grace. 
This is the literal meaning of Gabriel's phrase. She would be God's special instrument of blessing to the world. The coming of Jesus was a matter of grace, unspeakable favor, exceptional love, overwhelming kindness from beginning to end. The Lord is giving the world their means of salvation through the the motherhood of this woman. By one woman, sin and death were brought into the world in the beginning. And by the childbearing of one woman, life and immortality were brought to light when Christ was born. No wonder she was called favored. No wonder she is called blessed. The Lord was with her. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, notice the text isn't saying she was scared or startled by Gabriel's presence, but it says she was troubled at the the saying, the words. In other words, she was troubled at what Gabriel had told her. Most likely... As she was there hearing this and thinking about what she was being told, she remembers what we said of her. She's a young, poor, peasant girl. Surely in her mind, she would have concluded that the message of the angel, maybe it wasn't meant for her. Particularly given what it would require from her. But do you see her modesty here? Her her humility Me? Blessed? Favored? By the Lord? She did not understand why a heavenly visitor would greet her in such exalted terms. She's a lady of great humility. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Notice, do not be afraid. It's the same thing that Gabriel told Zechariah in verse 13 we looked at last week. Do not... Be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, this is just as incredible a promise as Zechariah got when Gabriel appeared to him and said, Your barren wife is going to conceive a child who will grow up to be a man. And who is the man who was prophesied about in the book of Malachi? He will come in the power and spirit of Elijah. He will prepare the way for the Messiah. You know, that's not news you get every day, right? But now we have a young lady. She's not royalty. She's not living in the holy city. And the same angel shows up and says, despite the fact that you're not married, despite the fact that you've never had any sort of sexual interaction with a man, despite the fact that you don't sense in any way that you are blessed or holy or worthy of anything from God, you're going to have a baby in your womb whose kingdom will never, ever, ever, ever end. This is just as, indeed it is more unbelievable than Gabriel's message to Zechariah. No one is living their life day to day expecting the angel Gabriel to show up out of nowhere and say, by the way, you're about to be pregnant. One other thing, 
He's the Savior of the world. Wow. It seems quite clear from the text that Mary was not very clear about everything that was going on in that moment. And understandably so, given her age, given her limited experience with the Scriptures, perhaps a a more learned woman would have grasped some of the implications of Gabriel telling her her boy's name would be Jesus. The name Jesus means Savior. But she couldn't put all the pieces together. And so Gabriel is very clear with her. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. In other words, your son will be called the Son of God. He will be given the royal throne. He will be royalty and his kingdom will last forever. Now, it seems Mary gets it. She would be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. Surely she had, she had heard of the Messiah. They've been waiting for 4,000 years. But what is meant by this? Did she know completely what that would look like? No, of course not. Nobody really did. And that's, what part, that's part of what makes the story of how Jesus came into the world and what he did while he was here so amazing and beautiful and unbelievable, especially to a first century Jewish audience. What were they waiting for in a Messiah? A baby born to a young unmarried peasant girl? No. They were looking for the white stallions to come into town. A man riding in with great power and military and political might who would overthrow King Herod and his kingdom and would take over, that the Jews would rise and have great power on the land. This is what they assumed. Now, Gabriel's words to Mary were a a loose rendition of 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, which is a foundational messianic prophecy called the Davidic Covenant. No doubt Mary had heard those words before as they were given in the synagogue. And no doubt she had heard of the coming Messiah. If nothing else, she at least understood the gist of what Gabriel was telling her. You will become pregnant. You will call your son salvation. He is the Son of God and he is the Messiah. Okay. This is amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine being Mary? hearing such incredible news. And look at Mary's response, because Mary's response is very, very different than Zechariah's, which we saw last week. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, remember Zechariah's response last week. It was more of a, yeah, listen, this, this can't happen. I'm an old guy. My wife, well, she's advanced in years and has had a barren womb her entire life. It's not possible. This was the attitude of Zechariah. He displayed unbelief. But what about Mary? She has an attitude in which she displays that this is not humanly possible. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. I just don't understand how. How will this happen? Do you see the difference? 
There's a humility in Mary that says, I don't understand and I don't know how you're able, but you are. How are you going to do it? I haven't been with a man. How am I going to get pregnant? And I haven't done these things. I don't understand. And so Gabriel provides her with an answer. Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. The power of God will overshadow you. Wow. We see this in the Old Testament. The presence of God in the sanctuary. The presence of God among His people in the wilderness. The presence of God at the transfiguration. The presence of God over His apostles. This is all the same language in the Bible. It's tied to God's overshadowing. And this is important because it brings to the surface even more the reality that Mary was not impregnated by a man, but was overshadowed by God himself. Can you imagine what that must have been like? The personal Holy Spirit was to bring about this wonder in the womb of Mary by exerting divine power within her. This is amazing. And we can just be gripped by how awesome a display of God's sovereignty this is. But let us not forget something. The power of God that overshadowed Mary and the Holy Spirit coming upon her is a picture of the work of God in the life of a new believer, is it not? Is it not to our amazement as we consider our salvation in the very same way as this message has come to Mary? Me? Me? You've chosen me? Why me? Surely you must have mistaken me for someone else. I know my own heart. I know my sin. I know how much I've hated you, God. This great work of the Holy Spirit is one of the wonders Christ offers to each one of us. It's new life from above, something we cannot do for ourselves. It's a sovereign work of God. It's divine. It's something we cannot produce on our own. It's something that the Bible tells us we didn't even want to happen. And then it does. Let us never get to the place where we think of the salvation of men to be just some common everyday occurrence. It's miraculous. When God saves a sinner, he brings a dead person to life. He is creating life where there was no life. And I hope all of us are constantly amazed as we consider our salvation the creator of the universe, whom I've kicked against, who I've screamed at and spit on and sat and watched as the Father poured His wrath out on His Son because of the sins that I have committed. He chose me. He loves me. He gave new life to me. 
That's the same power. It's the same God, the same Holy Spirit who brought the human life of Jesus to the virgin womb of Mary. God brings life to a barren womb. God brings life to a virgin womb. God brings life to dead men in the salvation of their souls. Now, for man's salvation, if man wants to be saved, the Savior had to meet certain criteria. Three specifics. One is that he had to be a man. Second, he needed to be sinless. And third, he had to be God. And this passage shows that Jesus is all three of them. First, it says the child is to be born. He will be human. He will be a man. Secondly, Gabriel says he will be called holy. He will be sinless. He will be righteous in every way. And third, he will be called the Son of God. In other words, he will be divine. So the sinless God-man, whose name means Savior, who is the awaited Messiah, whose kingdom has no end. We sing about that, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Are you gripped by those words? God's kingdom will never, ever end. This is the Messiah who's coming. The eternal Savior. And Mary, when he is born in your womb, the entire world will be transformed. Verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So Gabriel leaves Mary with the news of her aunt Elizabeth's pregnancy and reminds her that Elizabeth was barren. This is miraculous. And he's telling her, I know you're probably shocked right now, but I want to tell you also that your old barren relative is also six months pregnant. And then we see this great reality that we all need to be reminded of. The great truth that Mary so faithfully understood. Again, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Literally, it says, for not impossible will be every word with God. To the Hebrew, it would be evident that Gabriel was saying here, Something of an allusion to the Lord's work to the barren Sarah. Remember Sarah telling her that she would bear Isaac in, in her old age? If you know the story, you see that reality here. God will fulfill His Word. Nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is beyond the reach of God. Nothing is out of the control of God. We praise God for that, right? Right? Now, understanding this great truth that nothing is impossible with God is vitally important for our growth as Christians, for our understanding of God and His great work. And we need to recognize that in our fallen state, it is no doubt very natural 
that we would question the very things that we know to be true. Our faith is, at best, very feeble sometimes. Our greatest knowledge is a tainted knowledge. And there will be times when we ask ourselves, do I really believe this? A 6,000-year-old earth, a talking serpent, a massive ark with two of every animal, a man consumed by a giant fish that spit him on shore three days later. The parting of the Red Sea, manna falling from heaven, water gushing from a rock, time standing still, people being raised from the dead, Jesus walking on water. Do I really believe this? Can we be honest? We're going to struggle with this sometimes because we're still prone to forget the sovereign work and power of God. And we are prone to forget that what he has done in our own lives to testify to that power, we are prone to forget the massive amounts of evidence that point to the absolute reliability of the scriptures that God has given us. And to the unbelieving man, all of these things seem so foolish. They're quick to tell you it's it's just a fairy tale. It's a bunch of made-up stories that some people wrote to control the masses despite the fact that we have yet to hear one biblical contradiction, one shred of historical evidence that the Bible is inaccurate, or one iota of proof that a bunch of religious zealots simply decided to fabricate a bunch of stories about a man named Jesus so that they could control everyone's actions. But the Bible itself tells us, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So do we struggle with these things sometimes? I think if we're honest, we have to say yes. But how is it that we come back to holding that these things are indeed true? It's not a blind leap of faith. As we talked about two weeks ago, it's not just believing something because we're told to believe it. It's looking at the evidence. It's being persuaded of the truth. And it's the power of God, the Holy Spirit, transforming our hearts, transforming our minds to spiritually discern the truthfulness of these things. It's rightly understanding that while we look at the unbelievable things we see in the Bible we recognize that nothing is impossible with God. With Him who called the world into existence and formed it out of nothing, everything is possible. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. The implications are huge. There is no sin too black and bad to be pardoned by the Lord. The blood of Christ cleanses every sin to be redeemed. There is no heart too hard and wicked to be transformed. The heart of stone can be made into a heart of flesh. There is no trial too difficult to endure. The grace of God is sufficient for us. And when God is for us, who can be against us? There is no promise too great to be fulfilled. Christ's word never passes away, and what he has promised, he is able to perform. But 
my sin. My sin is great. My sin is overwhelming. My sin is deep, yes. But our Savior is much greater. You will sin. You will fall. You will even get scuffed up. But we need to continuously be reminded of these great principles. If you are a believer in Christ, God loves you. God is for you. God is working all things together for your good. And there are some of you who can hear me say this every week. God loves you and is for you and is working for your good. But I think you still really think that he hates you. You beat yourself up over your sin so much that you never have any sort of satisfaction that Christ has already paid the penalty for your sins. Don't, under, don't misunderstand me here. Feeling convicted when we sin is good and right and important, but it serves a very specific purpose. To drive us to the cross. To cause us to run to the cross. I've sinned again. Jesus, I've fallen again. Forgive me, Lord. I need Jesus. That's the answer. And we will hear it again and again and again. And we need to hear it again and again and again. I love you. I've forgiven you. And he loves you as much today as he did the day you were saved and as much as he will 10,000 years from now. He doesn't delight in your sin and you shouldn't either. And if you do, we need to ask some serious questions about your heart. But he loves you. He has done the impossible to save you. That he would be glorified in and through you. And so we see Jesus is the great Savior. And there is nothing too great for him to accomplish. And therefore, God was able to give a child to Zecharias and Elizabeth. Through, though both of them had lost all hope of ever having a child. He was able to fulfill the announcement given to Mary without the help of Joseph. Is it impossible for a virgin to become pregnant? Yes! I'm not falling for that one, okay? But wait! There is Mary. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Look how it ends. This is so very beautiful. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you write in your Bible, I want you to underline that word servant, or maybe your version says bond servant. That word literally means slave, doulos. Slave. You'll find this word throughout the scriptures and it is typically used to portray what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's an, an appropriate metaphor to picture the Christian's relationship to the Lord. Think about it. We depend on him to provide all of our needs, physical and spiritual. 
All of our abilities, all of our gifts come from him. The ultimate disposition of our life regarding judgment and reward is up to him. And if you're tempted to think it's beneath you to be a slave, be reminded it wasn't beneath the Lord. And what happened as a result? Scriptures tell us that God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reality is that we are all slaves, believer or not. You are either enslaved to your sin Or you are a slave to Christ. We are either owned by our sins and the desires of our flesh, or we are owned by Christ. And so we have to ask of ourselves as believers do we have this heart? Is my heart like that of Mary's? Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, I submit to your will, Lord. Now, think of the circumstances. A young unmarried girl is about to reveal to a culture that stones women to death for adultery, that she is pregnant outside of wedlock. And we know from the scriptures that there were many who never believed that she was a virgin because throughout Jesus' ministry, many of his opponents implied that he was an illegitimate child. So she was walking into a world of ridicule and shame and she responds, Not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. And for us... There will be times in our lives when the circumstances of what we face will be very difficult, sometimes seemingly unbearable. How do we respond? Mary shows us an example of true discipleship and obedience to the Lord. She wasn't expecting this. She wasn't praying for this. This wasn't Mary reaping what she had sown. This was God imposing on his faithful servant what he willed of her. And she is faithfully responding to him. And for us who are believers, I pray that God would help us to grow more and more into faithful, obedient servants that constantly turn to God in our circumstances and say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For those who are not in Christ, to what are you enslaved? Everyone everywhere is enslaved to something. Perhaps it's your job, hobby, maybe it's alcohol or sex. Maybe it's your car or your house, something. Now, many of you who do not believe have some legitimate questions. You have some doubts, you have some things you don't understand or you just can't comprehend. I encourage you to ask, search, ask whoever brought you or invited you. If not, ask me. We'll look to the scriptures. You may think your sin is too much. God can't possibly forgive the things that I have done. But you see right here, God brings life where there was no life. The scriptures tell you, you must be born again. 
Don't try to clean yourself up. You can't do it. God's standard is perfection. We all know we've fallen far short of that. Don't try to clean yourself up. Run to Jesus. He is our perfection. He is our righteousness. He is our only hope. And it is because of Him, because of His perfection, that we have the great joy. We have the great hope that new life comes where there was no life. Not by our doing, but by the sovereign doing of God. Run to Jesus. Believer, cast your burden on Jesus. Cause, let him to cause you to walk in the joy of your salvation. It is a great and glorious reality what God has done because with us it was impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for this great and glorious reminder of how you used such small, feeble circumstances to bring about the greatest, most glorious reality in all the earth. That you brought our Savior into the world to be one like us and yet wholly different from us. He who became man and yet not with the same nature. Not a nature of sin and rebellion, but a nature of perfection and holiness, complete and total righteousness. He was innocent in every way. Lord, we rejoice in the birth of Christ. We rejoice in that you did the miraculous to show us even more how you sovereignly work in the lives of your people to bring about the greatest ends. Lord, help us. Help our unbelief. As we read the things of the Scriptures that seem so incredibly difficult for so many to grasp, that we remember We remember what you have done. And we remember how you have done it. As we're prone to question and to doubt, Lord, strengthen our faith. Remind us of John in the barren womb of Elizabeth. Remind us of Jesus in the virgin womb of Mary. Remind us of these great promises which you had to be prophesied through your prophets and came to pass through your willing servants that you would be glorified and that we today, so many years later, would continue to look back to this great reality afresh and rejoice. Thank you for the life of Jesus. Thank you for the work of Jesus. And thank you for the righteousness of Jesus, our only hope, our salvation. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.